would be hard for me to express my excitement at receiving notice last week that you had unanimously extended a call to Pastor Lewis. I've received three calls in my life. They were never unanimous. <laughs> there was always somebody who had questions. I served as the stated clerk of this presbytery for 20 years. I saw lots of documentation. I may be mistaken, but I cannot remember a unanimous call. That is absolutely stunning. And I rejoice with you, and I talked with uh, Dennis on the phone last week, and we sort of rejoiced and wept together. And um, It's going to be a grand and glorious time, and I look forward to the day that we see him installed as your senior pastor. Now, children, today we begin what's called the Advent season. Advent. It's kind of a funny word. Advent means, Advent speaks of someone who is coming. Advent speaks of someone who will soon appear. The advent of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the appearing of Jesus. We also speak of his coming advent when he returns and comes again and appears again. So as we enter into the four weeks of Advent, we focus upon the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to do that in a manner that some of you are going to think extremely strange. But that's why I never received a unanimous call. <laughs> We're going to be looking at the gospel according to the prophecy of Jeremiah. So I hope that you will stick with me as we work our way through all of this. So please open your Bibles to the 35th chapter of Jeremiah. Jeremiah and chapter 35. I'm going to read some selected verses here, but I'll tell you which is the next verse as I read. Jeremiah 35 <coughs> beginning with the first verse. Um, all of this, of course, is during the time that Jeremiah is the prophet in Judah, which would be roughly, roughly, 600 years before the birth of Christ. Okay? The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, King Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, go to the house of the Rechabites. Now, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. I just think it's interesting. Who ever heard of the Rechabites before? Put your hand up. Uh-huh. Okay. That's why I didn't get a unanimous call. Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them and bring to them the and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers. Then offer them wine to drink. Verse 5. 
Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink wine. But they answered, we will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Recap, our father, commanded us, you shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house. You shall not sow seed. You shall not plant or have a vineyard, but you shall live in tents all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, and all that he commanded us to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, or our daughters. Verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares the Lord. The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept. And they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. Verse 16, the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have kept the command that their father gave them, but this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I have pronounced against them because I have spoken to them and they have not listened. I have called to them and they have not answered. Let's pray together. Father, as we give attention to your word, by your grace and by your mercy, may you lead and guide us into a truthful understanding, a proper understanding of the sense, of the purpose, of the application of that which is here set before us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Christmas is a little over three weeks away. It's hard to believe has a little bit to do with that brevity of life that we've been talking about this morning. And as we exchange gifts with family and with friends, I pray that we will remember that we have set this day aside to remember that we have received from our Heavenly Father the greatest gift of all, Jesus God, His Son, sent to save us from the curse and the power of sin. Here in Jeremiah chapter 35, the people of Judah are challenged to remember. They are challenged to remember that as God's people, as God's covenant people, they are to live in faithful obedience 
to the Lord, and they need reminding. It's some 600 years before the birth of Christ. Things are not good in Judah. They are suffering terribly at the hands of the Babylonian Empire, King Nebuchadnezzar and his armies. To answer the question, why are we in this mess? The prophet Jeremiah brings into the temple the Rechabite family. The Lord, through Jeremiah, is going to point to them as a living example of what it looks like to live in faithful obedience to the Lord. What it looks like to live in faithful obedience to one's heavenly Father, just as the Rechabites lived in faithful obedience to their earthly father. Look at verses 6 and 7. The Rechabites do not drink wine, and normally they live in tents. Now, why is that? It is because, it's because their father taught them to so live. Now, don't get caught up here. The issue here, that the focus of this passage, it isn't on the virtue of not drinking wine, and I certainly hope it's not on the virtue of living in tents. Okay, I mean, that's not the point here. The focus is on the Rechabite family's faithful obedience of their earthly father. And the Lord calls upon the Judeans to take heed of their example. Because unlike the Rechabites, the Judeans are not God's covenant people. They are not living in faithful obedience to their heavenly father. Look at verses 12 through 15. Just to sum them up, the Lord asks, will you not learn a lesson from the Rechabites and obey my word? The Rechabites obey their father's commands. I've spoken to you. And it's interesting how often this phrase appears in the prophecy of Jeremiah. I have spoken to you persistently. Look for that word persistently when you read through the prophecy of Jeremiah. I have spoken to you persistently, and yet you have not obeyed me. And therefore, in verse 17, the Lord says to the Judeans, why are you suffering? It's because you have not obeyed me. You have not obeyed my word. And therefore, I am justly punishing you for your disobedience. Okay, now, this is going to get difficult, all right? I understand that. I'll do my best to make this as interesting as I can. The Judeans have come to live in such utter disregard for the word because of their past history. And what I want to do is just very quickly walk you through the past 100 years of their history. The 100 years prior to this moment when Jeremiah brings the Rechabites into the temple and the Lord uses them as an example before the Judeans. Okay, now I'm going to be throwing, here's the problem. Okay, here's the problem. I'm going to throw a lot of strange names at you. 
Don't get hung up on the names. All right? There will not be a quiz. All right? Now, I say that because when I taught Old Testament history at Covenant for some 20 years, my students had to memorize the names of the kings. And they didn't extend to me unanimous vote either. Okay, so, but I think, so don't get hung up on the names, okay? We're not going to quiz you on that. I want you to focus on the disturbing reality of why Judah is facing and justly deserving of the Lord's judgment. During the past 100 years prior to this day, Judah has been ruled by good kings and by evil kings. Throughout those 100 years, this was the consistent pattern. If the king was good, the people tended to live good. If the king was evil, the people tended to emulate the wickedness of their king and live as idolaters and live immoral lifestyles. Now, 100 years before Jeremiah's day, the king of Judah was named Ahaz. He was a wicked man. That's all I'm going to say. He dies. He's succeeded by his son. Son's name is Hezekiah. He proves to be a good king. Bad king, good king. Hezekiah dies, and he's succeeded by his son Manasseh, who, in my opinion, the scripture seems to point to as the most horribly evil king to ever sit upon Judah's throne. His impact, in, in fact, and this is what you really need to hold on to, the impact of Manasseh upon his people was so great that even after Manasseh personally repented, and he did personally repent, but even after Manasseh personally repented of all his evil, the Judeans continued to live in blatant disobedience to the Lord. So much so that the Lord decrees, 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 2, the Lord decrees, I am going to bring upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Now, it's Manasseh. He dies. About five years after Manasseh dies is when Jeremiah's prophetic ministry begins. But now remember, as it begins, the people of Judah are still immersed in pagan practices and immoral lifestyles, all of which they learned from their former king, Manasseh. Now, Manasseh's dead. So the king of Judah is Manasseh's son. And again, we go from evil to good, from evil to good. Because now the king is Josiah, a godly ruler. At the age of 20, he begins a series of reforms to purge Judah of her pagan religion and immoral lifestyles. And he has the support of the prophet Jeremiah. But despite all of their efforts, both king and prophet, both Josiah and Jeremiah face strong opposition from a large contingent of the people of Judah. Now, that's Judah. 
Just look at the wider stage just a moment, okay? Who's still awake? If you're awake, raise your hand. You still awake? Okay, 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 good, good, okay. So now look at the wider stage. During those 100 years, the big boy on the block is the Assyrian Empire, dominant power in that area of the world. But as Jeremiah's ministry begins, Assyria is being challenged by a new kid on the block, the Babylonian Empire. And in fact, some 15, 16 years after Jeremiah's ministry begins, in 612 BC, Babylon conquers Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. So there's a new kid on the block. There was the Assyrian Empire overruling Judah. Now there's this Babylonian Empire that's marching in to take control. Well, it makes everybody nervous. In fact, it makes the Pharaoh of Egypt so nervous that he marches north out of Egypt through the land of Judah to join with whatever remaining Assyrian army there might be to try and stop Babylon. Now, when he marches through Judah, Josiah views what the Pharaoh is doing as an invasion of his kingdom. So Josiah militarily confronts the armies of Egypt and the armies of Judah are defeated and Josiah is killed in battle. Well, okay, so the Pharaoh has marched through Judah. He's now joined the Assyrians. They're confronting the Babylonians. But the combined armies of Egypt and Assyria are soundly defeated by the Babylonians. So what happens? So Egypt, now beaten, retreats south and perhaps in a fit of pride takes control of Judah. He's already defeated the armies of Judah. Now the Pharaoh takes control of Judah. He takes control to the point that he removes from the throne Josiah's son, now don't get cut up with these names, he removes from the throne Josiah's son Jehoahaz. Some of you mothers might want to write these names down. I mean, you, you know, you might want to use them. I've always thought they were somewhat great names to use for German shepherds. Okay, so, so he, he removes Jehoahaz, Je, jo, Josiah's son Jehoahaz, who has reigned for only three months. He removes him from the throne and he replaces him. Um, he replaces him with his hand-chosen successor, um, and that is um, a man named Jehoiakim. Isn't that great? Jehoahaz is replaced by Jehoiakim, okay? You got that? Okay, all right. He replaces him. Um, but during... Jehoiakim's reign with Egypt in control of Judah, Egypt again decides to try to stop Babylon. 
So again, they march north, and this time they are utterly defeated by the Babylonians. And with the utter defeat of Egypt, the Babylonians now march south and take control of Judah. This is the story of the invasion of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon. Okay? He marches in. He overwhelms Jerusalem. Uh, he carries into captivity some of its leading citizens, which include Daniel and his friends. And he leaves Jehoiakim. He still leaves Jehoiakim on the throne, but Jehoiakim knows very, very well that he is under the thumb of the Babylonians. So what does Jehoiakim do? He tries to rebel. He tries to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar's armies return to Judah, remove Jehoiakim from the throne, deport him to Babylon. He dies on the journey. He's succeeded by his son, Jehoiachin. You love that, huh? Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, now we have Jehoiachin. You see why these names are easy to keep straight. Okay, so he replaces him with Jehoiachin, but Jehoiachin reigns for only three months and then Nebuchadnezzar also deports him to Babylon, where he will live the rest of his life. Nebuchadnezzar then places Zedekiah, at least it's a different, that starts with a Z instead of a J. He, he places Zedekiah, who is Jehoiachin's uncle, on the throne. But then in 587 BC, Zedekiah also decides I'm going to rebel against Babylon. And Babylon once more invades Judah. Zedekiah and his whole family are killed. The walls of Jerusalem are torn down. The temple is completely destroyed. And the Ark of the Covenant forever goes missing, no matter what you may have seen in a movie featuring Indiana Jones. Okay. Now, Many of the remaining Judeans are carried away into exile to Babylon, as was King Jehoiachin. King Jehoiachin is carried away in exile to Babylon, where he will live the rest of his life. And we're going to come back to Jehoiachin in just a moment, okay? They'll live there for 70 years, as is prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 25. But in the midst of those 70 years, a remarkable event occurs. Go to the last chapter of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 52. So Jehoiachin has been carried away into captivity. But in the midst of the captivity, in the midst of those 70 years, this is what you're told. In Jeremiah chapter 52 the last four verses of Jeremiah's prophecy. In the 37th year of the exile, so the Jews have been in exile 37 years, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, now notice this, in the 12th month on the 25th day, the 12th month, the 25th day, huh, it's another December 25th, 
The twelfth month has nothing to do with Christmas. On the twelfth month, on the 25th day of the month, Evil Merodach, now how would you like for your mother to name you Evil Merodach? Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs until the day of his death, as long as he lived. Now, clearly, that's wonderful news for Jehoiachin, but more importantly, more importantly, this Babylonian king, evil Merodach, and evil just happens to be his name. I'm not sure. I'm sure he may have been an evil person, but that's not why he was given that name. But Babylon's king, totally unbeknownst to him, is carrying out the Lord's promises to David. The Lord told David, if your sons rebel against me, I'll punish them. But the Lord almost also promised David that he would always lovingly remember the house of David. And from David's house, he would raise up a son who would reign over the Lord's people forever. The house of David is living in exile. But the Lord's promise still stands. The throne in Jerusalem is empty. But the Lord's promise still stands. The promise that one day a son of David will reign forever over his kingdom. And who is the son of David the Lord raises up to reign over his people forever? 550 years later, a young maiden named Mary is told, you will have a son who will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And that promised son of David is Jesus. Is Jesus. Now a little more, okay? Here we go again. You ready? Still with me? Who's awake? Raise your hand if you're awake. Okay, okay, okay. Some of you are not telling the truth. All right, okay. A little more than 500 years before the birth of Jesus, a little more than 500 years before the birth of Jesus, as the 70 years of Babylonian exile are drawing to a close, another momentous event in history occurs. The Babylonian Empire is conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. And very soon after that conquest, the Persian king Cyrus issues a decree allowing whatever Jews living in exile want to, they can return to their homeland to rebuild the temple. And in response, a small remnant returns, 
builds a new temple, eventually will restore the walls of Jerusalem. So the Lord's people, at least a remnant of them, are back in Judah. But all is not well. All is not well. Because over the next 500 years, Judah will never be ruled by a son of David. They will worship in a temple far less impressive than Solomon's temple, and it will be a temple void of the Ark of the Covenant. For those 500 years, they will live subservient to Persia, to Greece, and then to Rome. But during those five centuries, there are people within Judah who live in anticipation of the day when the Lord will make all things right. You got it? I know. It's terribly complicated. Can you imagine a historian, if the Lord tarries a historian 500 years from now trying to explain the, the situation in our world in this day? History is always complicated. There's always these twists and turns, these ups and downs. It's just so complex. But I take the time to review all this history because... Your celebration of Advent, this coming, this arriving, your celebration of Advent is tied to these historical events which are sovereignly determined by your Lord. None of this is an accident. None of this is just, doesn't just come out of the blue. It is all the sovereign working of the Lord. He is the one who rules over the affairs of human history, including your life, the lives of your family, the life of this church, and even this world in which we now live. Now think about this. The Lord sovereignly orders the histories of nations and empires, both then and now then, as hopefully you've come to understand the exile, the restoration of Judah, the rise and fall of Babylon, of Assyria, of, of Persia, of Rome, all these events orchestrated by the Lord in preparation for the coming promised son of David, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The Lord continues to rule over the nations. I know sometimes it's hard to believe, but he's still at work in this world to accomplish through you his covenant people, his church, his eternal salvific purposes. He's working in and through you to fulfill his promise to extend his kingdom from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. And even as our culture seemingly collapses and the darkness grows thicker. He is at work in and through people like you and me to spread everywhere the blazing light of his truth. So, who are the people? Who are the people through whom the Lord will accomplish his good purposes? They are people like the Rechabites, 
People who will hear their father's command and live in obedience to his word. This is who you are, and I know that this is who many of you are. The Lord will accomplish in and through you more than you can ask or imagine. For his glory, for your blessing, and for the temporal and eternal welfare of others. Now look at Jeremiah 23. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Here's the Lord's promise. In the midst of all of the turmoil taking place in Judah, despite the fact that these people are not deserving of God's grace, just as we are not deserving of God's grace, just as we have at times lived in disregard of our Father's word. Yet, the Lord says to his people, the Lord makes this promise to his people. He says, the behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. A righteous branch. What's he referring to? He's referring perhaps back to Isaiah's prophecy who talks about the fact that the kingdom of David will be cut down so only a stump is left in the ground but out of that stump will grow a branch. Out of the roots of David will come a strong, strong branch who will reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved, and Israel, we are Judah, we are Israel. In his day, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Now look at the name that, by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Not that the Lord, his name is not simply the Lord is righteous, which of course he is. But his name is, the Lord is our righteousness. Our righteousness. Wow. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for your sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? Who knows? We might become what? the righteousness of God, the Lord, our righteousness. The one of whom Jeremiah and Paul speaks is Jesus, the king who rules wisely and does what is just and right as he rules over nations and kingdoms. He's the one who by grace through faith saves you from sin's curse and power, and by his grace, and by grace through faith in him as Savior and Lord, he declares you to be righteous. He declares you to be righteous. He declares you to be righteous. He declares you to be sinless in his sight. He declares you to be holy. So this morning, 
I pray you can with me and many others rejoice because of this stunning fact of history. All of this history culminating in the idea, culminating in the historical moment when God becomes a man and obeys perfectly his father's every command. He is the perfect Rechabite. He then takes upon himself our sins. He dies to pay the penalty for your transgressions. He then rises triumphant over sin and death and the grave. And he has graciously bestowed upon you the gift of faith, forgiving your sin, forgiving your sin, forgiving your sin, declaring you righteous in his sight, promising to be with you always and to love you with a love that will never let you go. And he is the one whom we serve, is the sovereign Lord at work, even in the midst of this horribly troubled world. What are his purposes? What does the future hold? I don't know. But I know the one who holds the future. I know the one who holds the future. And therefore, you now, by God's grace, live knowing your purpose, knowing that your purpose is to be used by him to help restore a broken creation to be used by him to bring sinners to salvation. And therefore, by God's grace, I pray that you will eagerly strive as good Rechabites to obey your Father's commands, to live eagerly, awaiting the day of his next advent awaiting the day when he comes again, the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, teach us, lead us, guide us, fill us with a holy urging. Father, may we prove to be good Rechabites who are faithful faithfully obedient to our heavenly Father's commands. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.